Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a great gift you have given us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your word. Work in us ever greater faith so that we love Christ Jesus evermore. And in his name we pray, amen. We've spent the last two weeks in Pentecost. We saw the power of the Holy Spirit working in the apostles and the early Christian church. We went through Peter's sermon, right? And we saw that it was a Bible-based, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-filled sermon. And on that day, about 3,000 souls were added to the church. So on that day of Pentecost, the church was born. But I bet they started to think, well, what do we do now? The Holy Spirit's been working here, right? Now, what do we do? And so therefore, this morning, we're going to take a look at the beginning of the church and the fundamental functions that the church did. And it is found in our reading from Acts today. And it is found in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. We find that in the very early church, what they focused on were four things. It is the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. So today, our roadmap is those four items, those four essential functions of the church that if you take them away, we're not really a church anymore. So let's go one by one here. Teaching. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When you take a look at the original text, it's actually much stronger than just devoted. I like the amplified version. It says they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles. You find that this is an ongoing thing that they were doing. If you take a look at the uh, King James translation, I like this one perhaps the best. And I don't use King James a lot, but, you know, we can take a look at a variety of different translations. The King James says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, I like that word, steadfast. It's a good word, right? A strong, solid word. It means unwavering, unfaulting, unswerving, resolute, firm. And so what they were doing is they were resolute, firm, unwavering, hungry for what the apostles were teaching. And what were the apostles teaching? Well, you find this. The main teaching of the apostles, that it was Bible-based and Christ-centered. Just go back to Peter's sermon. As a matter of fact, go to any sermon within Acts, and you'll find that it is Bible-based and Christ-centered. The teaching that they gave was about Jesus and salvation through him alone. That was the teaching. And that's what we covered the last two weeks. Now, you might say, well, were the apostles simply giving sermon after sermon after sermon? Well, I imagine some of their talks were fairly long. And some of them were much more formal because if you had a crowd of 3,000, it's pretty much, it's hard to have a dialogue, isn't it? But they also did something else. They shared their testimony. 
You see, they had been with Jesus for three years, right? They had sat at his feet. They had learned from him. And so again and again and again, they were sharing their testimony. Listen to what John wrote. John wrote in his letter, 1 John, the first letter we have. He begins this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So they proclaim the testimony of their eyewitness, their testimony of Christ Jesus. And so thus, when we share our testimony, we should also be proclaiming Christ Jesus. Now, they shared their toast testimony. What else did they do? Well, they taught from Scripture, right? But was the New Testament written? It wasn't written at this time. So what did they do? They taught from the Old Testament. So last week we talked about the 63,779 connections, if you remember that graph, and how many connections there were between the Old and New. If you take a look at the Gospel of Matthew, the purpose that Matthew had of proclaiming Christ was also to show the Jews how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. That's what he was doing. That's why there's so many references to the Old Testament in Matthew. So their teaching was testimony and scripture from the Old Testament. And by the way, they were simply following what Jesus did, didn't he? What Jesus did was teach also from the Old Testament. Our gospel reading, remember, we talked about this right after Easter, about the two guys on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize who Jesus was, and Jesus walks with them. And our reading comes to this, Jesus saying to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe that all the prophets have spoken. You had the prophets, you had the Old Testament, you don't get it? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in Scripture all the things concerning who? Himself. So everything, he said, pointed to who he is. You see, time and time again, Jesus was pointing out to the people who he was. The centrality of Jesus' teaching was not simply about being a nice person. The centrality of Jesus' teaching was to believe in him. People said, we want to do the works of God. And he said, you want to know what the work of God is? To believe in the one who God sent. To have faith in him and faith in him alone. That's the centrality of Christ's teaching. That's what the apostles taught. And you know what? The church was hungry for that. They were starving for that. They were eager to know. And this is a far, far cry from many churches today. Many churches today just, 
They, they don't trust just the word in Christ. They want to make it into motivational speeches and other things. But could we not have churches, could we not have preachers who simply say, here's the word, and here's the word, and here is Christ Jesus proclaimed in the word. That's what the early church was hungry for. And the, and, and the church grew because of that and that alone. Paul wrote to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The apostles' teaching. And the crowd, the, the disciples, the converts were hungry for that. So there was teaching and there was fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Now, we've talked about this before, fellowship, right? It can be a really churchy word. But what's been really interesting during this time of separation is how many people have said, I miss that fellowship. I miss getting together. And you can tell that an essential part of church is that fellowship with one another. Yes, I am thankful that we have online, and I'm thankful for those who are at home right now and other parts that you can worship with us. But I've talked and heard from so many people that there's something about coming together that makes it an essential function of the church. So let's delve into this a little bit more. Fellowship. It's found first in Acts here. The word fellowship is found in Acts. And it means commonness or commonality. So what is the commonness or commonality first and foremost that we have with one another? Well, John wrote about that. I talked about that. That's which we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son in Christ Jesus. The first and foremost fellowship that we have in the church is with God. It is based on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the fellowship that we must first and foremost have in the church. And when you have that fellowship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, then you have fellowship with one another. And I've said this before. This is why in the ministerial, even though we're really wide on our doctrine on some things, I can still have true brotherly love and fellowship with them because we hold to the essentials. We are in agreement on that. That we say that it is Christ Jesus alone in whom we have salvation and it's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And to all of that we praise and say amen, right? Look, at Joy Church... We are a Lutheran body, and that's fine. We make no apologies for being a Lutheran body. And yet, the family of joy is pretty wide, right?
I mean, you talk to people. We have people from all sorts of different Christian denominations. But what has kept us here, I believe, what has drawn us here is that fellowship that we have in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and specifically now in Christ Jesus. It is Him and His Word that we have fellowship. And that's the joy that we have here at Joy Church. So if you take a look at it, the foundation of the church, really, the Christian church, and the foundation of fellowship is first found in God and specifically now in Jesus. Okay? By the way, if you don't have this type of fellowship, you know what you have for a church? A club. A social gathering. That's about it. Now, is there more to fellowship than what I've just said? And yeah, there is. And you know this as well. There's more to fellowship. The fellowship, if we take an example of Jesus, what did he do along the way with the disciples and the apostles? Well, he encouraged and comforted them. He grieved when they grieved. He was moved to feed them, heal, pray for them. He was a servant and even washed their feet. He gave his life for them. On occasions, he also rebuked them of their sin, and when they repented, he gave them forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Do you understand that this is the fellowship that we have in the church? It is the fullness of that fellowship. Paul wrote about this in Galatians. He said in Galatians chapter 6, we should share one another's burdens. And later on in verse 10, so then... As we have opportunity, let us, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You see, this is more than just fellowship on a Sunday, right? This is a depth and breadth of fellowship we have with our brothers and sisters of the church throughout the world. And when you go into that depth and breadth of fellowship, there's a cost to it. Just as true discipleship is costly, so is true fellowship. It means willing to lay down your pride, your ego, your selfishness, to forgive when you don't want to, to do all of those things because they're your family, they're your brothers, they're your sisters in Christ Jesus. That's the fellowship. That's what the early church had. And they were giving things away for the sake of each other. So teaching fellowship and now the breaking of the bread. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread. Now, at casual glance, it might seem like they were just eating together, right? Breaking bread, right? We talk about breaking bread and just having a meal with somebody. But is that what it's referring to here? And I don't think so. Because it says the breaking of the bread. That's the literal reading of it. The breaking of the bread. And in this case, the extra the highlights it, doesn't it? Sets it apart. And I believe that this is really speaking about communion. The breaking of the bread. 
the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted on the night of Passover, the night in which Jesus was betrayed. And you know this one, that Jesus fulfilled the old covenant and as the Passover lamb, through his body and through his blood, created a new covenant. And this is what it reads in Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And what do we find in the breaking of the bread? Is it simply a mere rite? Is it simply a mere ordinance as some churches would have it do? You know, a ritual that you go through. And we would say, no, no. When you take a look at scripture, you take a look at what Jesus said, it is through his body and through his blood, there is forgiveness of sin. We observe it because the Lord commanded it. But we simply do not receive it as a ritual. We receive actual grace, forgiveness of sin. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, wrote this. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation, communion in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is not a participation in the body of Christ because there is one bread, we who are one body, for all partake of one bread. So in this partaking of communion, Paul uses this word twice, participation, right? Is it not a participation? And in this participation, by the way, can also be translated fellowship. So in Christ Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, we have fellowship. It can also be translated this way, communion. We have communion with one another. And that's why we often call the Lord's Supper communion. So this is what the early church did. Now, I know we have put a pause on this for safety's sake. And I was just uh, approached earlier before this, and some other people have approached me, is there a way that we could do communion? So I'm going to talk to the board and see what's possible. I know there's some other churches that have some practices, and perhaps we can learn from them. But I know from, from you who have talked to me that there's been a missing here as well, because there's that deep fellowship and forgiveness of sin. Now, I also want to point out that we do receive grace through his word too. So it's not like we've never had forgiveness of sin. We have forgiveness of sin through his word as well. But this is what the early church did, the breaking of the bread. And now we are going to go into the prayers. And they devoted themselves to the prayers, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So just as... The fellowship, the breaking of the bread, it has the prayers. Not just and prayers, but it has the prayers. So it's setting aside again something very specific here. 
And you know what's really interesting? What's interesting is that the disciples, before Jesus was crucified, died, and rose, you don't find much about them praying together, do you? It's always Jesus who has been leading the prayers. It is Jesus who has gone off often at uh, early morning, at night, and spent time in prayers. He will lead prayers for the people. But you don't find the disciples doing that. But wow, after Jesus died, and then he was resurrected, and then he ascended into heaven, wow, did they pray. (laughs) They were devoted to the prayers. It says this in the very beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, and these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, they were all together gathered praying. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, which we've been covering in our Bible study, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Prayer was essential to Jesus. Prayer was essential to the early church. Prayer is essential to who we are as a church. It's not something that you just Okay, yeah, we have the little section of prayer. We got to get through that to get to the other stuff. It actually should be an essential part of who we are because prayer is summed up in one word alone worship. Prayer is part of worship, it's not a thing set aside from, it is actually worshiping the Lord. Prayer is a natural part of worship. To know God is to want to worship Him and pray to Him. Our call to worship this morning, right, from First Chronicles. What a lovely song, what a lovely prayer of praise. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor of his holiness. What you find throughout Scripture is that people would come together as a body of believers and as a body of believers offer up their prayer. Prayer is essential to the church. Corporate prayer is essential to who we are. And prayer itself is an outpouring of oneself to the glory grace, compassion, justice, and righteousness of God. Now, I know there's a lot of people say, well, I I don't know how to pray. Well, we've got the Lord's Prayer. We, We know how to pray that, right? We don't have to have fancy prayers. The Lord does not grade you. Listen up. The Lord does not grade you on how fancy your prayers are. You do not have to pray in King James English, O Lord God, I beseech thee. I'd really be surprised if many people use that word beseech in your prayers. You don't have to, but it is a simple 
prayer, a prayer unto the Lord, giving him glory and praise and letting him know your, na- your needs. I like this. I've given this quote before, but John Richard Moreland said, prayer is not an artful monologue, a voice lifted up from the sod. It is love's tender dialogue between the soul and God. Just thank God that you are still alive this day. Praise him for his mercies, which are made new every day. Repent of your sins and ask for his forgiveness. Let him know your needs. Pour out your heart to him. All in the name of Christ Jesus, who is our intercessor. This is prayer. So we have four things of the early church, and you can see how fundamental they are. I have that quote in there. There's teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer. And it all can be summed up in worshiping the Lord God. This is what the early church did. So I know... I know that we can't all meet together. And, and, I'm not, and there are some people who should not be here, right? So don't hear this as like, well, you got to be here now. Please do not hear that. But the danger now in this digital age, well, the, the blessing is that we've been able to reach people who have never heard the gospel before. Praise God, right? Praise Jesus for that. The danger is, and I've been reading about this, is that people say, well, I don't need to go to church anymore because I've got everything online. No, you don't. The essential functions of the church are the teachings. Can you get that online? Yes. But the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers together, that's for us as a body. So if you are not able to join us, right? You can still pray. You can actually pick up the phone and say, hey, can we just have a little prayer time? If you're married, pray with your spouse. If you have a family, pray with your children. You can pray with your neighbors. You, I mean, it's amazing how much people are hungry for that prayer and fellowship right now. So this morning, just one thing. Will you renew your commitment to being the church, to the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers so that Jesus is worshiped and praised to the glory of God in heaven. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to be church. And for that, we all say, amen.